This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Forgery versus Magic. Making Drama Matter. And Ken's Powell's Book Raid. It has come to pass. The new third edition of Unknown Armies is in stores now. Unknown Armies is a modern-day occult role-playing game about broken people who conspire to fix the world. The new edition has a completely new character creation system. Now, more than ever, each character's attributes revolve around their wounded and worsening psychological state. The third edition also has a whole new way for GMs to focus play on the group's communal goal to change the world. And the myriad ways things are likely to go horribly, horribly wrong. Unknown Army's third edition has three core books, Play for Players, Run for GMs, and reveal the Book of the Weird for everyone. Buy them individually, or in a deluxe set whose slipcase has a magnetic clasp and unfolds to become a GM screen. Read more at atlas-games.com slash unknownarmies. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Because Unknown Armies is there, right now. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. But Wait hey, a minute, are, there, are those authentic Doritos, Ken, Those are or? the store-brand Doritos. They're not real Doritos. And I think these dice aren't proper Chessex dice. They may have been just found somewhere in a I think their edges are mathematically game. incorrect. Yeah, they, we could be rolling at non-random. And what are these are These miniatures are plastic they're just painted to look like lead robin if that peter frampton comes alive turns out to be from the uh double album re-release uh, and is just blown up a cd cover concept art i am going to be mad as heck because we will have been gulled by yeah, forgers it's, it's the chinese uh bootleg uh, peter frampton comes back from the dead peter frampton returns because you did not placate his ancestors is i think the actual title of that version but that's as may be, because if we can be gulled by forgers and counterfeiters, so much more can and should your uh, player characters. And, of course, they say, but we have truth magic. Uh, therefore, we can't be gulled. But, as real-life forgers know, there's no such thing as can't be gulled. There's only can't be gulled right now. So... Right. What do you think, Robin? What about forgery? What about counterfeiting? It's such a fun, delightful thing to read about because you're always rooting for the forger. But I guess in the player character's case, you are hopefully if they're forgers, you're rooting for them. But if they're not, then they're going to be mad as heck when they get the um, uh, ring of not so much featherfall. Right. I was uh, thinking about this. I was reading a book uh, recently called Provenance by Lainey Salisbury and Ali Sujo, uh, and it covers the career of the... Uh, Con artist uh, John Drew and uh, his favorite maker of fake paintings, a man named John Myatt. Uh, Drew uh, operated in the 1990s in the UK. And uh, the thing that is remarkable, well, there's many things that are remarkable about that case. So read the book. It's very interesting. Uh, 
But one of the things that he did that was quite different was that he thought the art market relies on provenances. So even if my guy is better at forging some artists than others, and some of them look kind of wrong, if I forge the documentary details, the uh, invoices and the old exhibition catalogs and stuff, and sneak them into existing archives, like at the Tate Gallery, then the stuff that I'm pawning off will seem authentic. And so uh, that was a, a an especially big blow against the art world because it not only uh, resulted in a lot of fakes being put on the market, but guess what? There's actually a lot of fakes on the market at all times and has been ever since the Romans started making Greek statues. <laughs> right. Um, and probably older than that. I mean, the Egyptians were selling a bunch of authentic um, uh, uh, paintings and whatnot of the gods to the Phoenicians. And I'll bet that a lot of those were made in the back room. As soon as authenticity became valuable, people started stealing authenticity. Yep. Um, but uh, as you suggest, what do we do in a world of uh, a truth magic? Now, uh, we can't allow a magical world to be more boring than our real world, even if it's an F F20 world where supposedly... There's a realistic truth magic. So the first question is, is your magic that judges whether that painting that you found down in the dungeon, is that infallible or are there gradations of, of true and false? And generally, I think uh, we expect that uh, truth magic will give you the right answer. In an investigative game, you need it to give you the right answer, right? If, if it's yeah. important to the mystery that this painting is real or a forgery uh, and you have art history, much less a magical spell that allows you to, to determine whether it's fake or not, you need to have the right answer. But in, in another context where, uh, as you suggest, you're either the forger or, you know, you found uh, this uh, painting that's been missing for 200 uh, years uh, down in the uh, dungeon, or, you know, you want to prove that this uh, bit of elven woodwork, in fact, dates back 13 centuries to the golden age of the elves and wasn't just a knockoff made in a shop a couple of years ago. You want to be able to uh, prove that one way or the other, but how much fun is it if you can just go, yep, nope, yep, nope. And so I guess the first question is, uh, if you are going to someone else to get the spell cast, uh, because this is a uh, boring sort of uh, professional spell that you didn't bother to learn because it doesn't help you to kill orcs, or no one actually believes you if you say, well, I've cast a uh, true sight on this and this painting that I am selling is absolutely authentic. No, you've got to go to a third party who's going to cast the spell of authenticity. And then the question becomes not how reliable is the spell, but how reliable are the authenticators? Right. Yeah. The And that's a big part of the problem in the real world in forgeries as well, because, of course, who knows more about Rembrandt than curators of Rembrandt museums and who has a bigger stake in not saying that their Rembrandt museums are full of forged Rembrandts than curators of Rembrandt museums. So that whole question of who's got a stake in the art being authentic or not is going to be even a bigger deal in a magical world where say a relic of a saint has genuine magical powers versus our world where it's magical powers at the very best are um, uh, harder to apperceive objectively. And so the question of forging a, a relic or forging something, you may have had to cut it off of a real uh, supernatural creature, but it's a, it's a chimera wing, not an angel wing. And so when it's out there doing magic for people, it's doing creepy, weird, mutating magic, not proper sacrifying magic. Right. And, and in a world where there's truth magic, there's also 
falsity magic. Right. So if the forger invoked the god of trickery while creating the painting, the god of truth, uh, who sends down his, uh, his counterspell, the cleric may or may not be able to overcome that spell. And so that gives you the doubt that exists in the real world art market where uh, things are, and even if people aren't uh, corrupt, there are, as you suggest, people have other reasons, other stakes for wanting to uh, believe that something is real. And there are often kind of gradations so that uh, you mentioned Rembrandt and he painted in an era where painters had apprentices. They worked in shops and there was a guy who was good at trees and a guy who was good at angel faces and somebody who's good at uh, rocks. And then the uh, name brand artist would come and, uh, you know, do the faces and sprinkle Rembrandt dust on the painting. And some of the uh, paintings being made in that workshop would be copies just being made in order for the apprentices to learn the art. They weren't intended to be passed off as Rembrandt's. Uh, and other ones, you know, they, uh, the, the good burgers who paid for them wanted to be sure that every inch of it was Rembrandt. So the answer may be, well, this is 75% the work of uh, this famous orc uh, muralist uh, from three centuries ago. But stuff over here is we're not sure about this. So uh, and it may have been added at the time or uh, often uh, restorers in uh curly quotes, will add stuff to a painting in order to make it seem uh, more authentic. So the idea of a a painting that's 100% authentic or 100% fake, there is a continuum in between those things. And again, if there's some sort of skill role involved or overcoming the opposition of forgery magic, that gives you the level of doubt that still exists in our world when it comes to authentic pieces of art. The other thing that you have to deal with is the question of, is the forgery, as we've sort of been assuming now, the forgery is sort of a one-and-done question. It's a, is it real, is it not real? And even the gradations is, you know, for the purposes of the investigation, if we have to know School of Rembrandt, but Rembrandt signed it, versus School of Rembrandt and Rembrandt didn't sign it, versus School of Rembrandt and Rembrandt was dead, um, then you still assume that that piece of information is gained in one feat, right? One roll, one uh, spend of art history, one whatever. Now, in a game where forgery is more of a centerpiece, where there is, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, tactical forgery, combat forgery, because the forgery is either the center of the story or because it's such an exciting part of the story that, like auctions in bookhounds, you need to have uh, an ability to um, have the outcome in doubt, what you can do is present, as we've been saying, um, you can say, you, uh, the uh, the investigating cleric, believe that this is a forgery because uh, of uh, your, your skill or your magic or the word from your god, but your belief does not constitute proof. And in order to prove that it's a forgery, you will have to do these other investigative actions. You have to go into the records of the provenance like you were talking. You have to go find the forger and make him confess. You have to do any number of other things that deepen the story. Um, I, I don't think you can necessarily just have a, a forge or a combat of forgery skills where you're taking hit points off of each other's certainty that it's a forgery versus plausibility. That seems a little, um, uh, ridiculous. Uh, although obviously you can do it in any really open system where you can make a contest about anything, but I just don't think that that's the best way to do a, uh, making, is it, is it not a forgery, a centerpiece of the story? Yeah. So if that was interesting once, <laughs> if right, it would yeah. not be interesting a, a second time, certainly uh, another option. If you're trying to assess the 
authenticity of a work is that you could contact the artist who's dead, but it's a magical world, so you can uh, call down the spirit of the artist, and the artist can tell you, uh, you know, how much of it they painted. There's a great story about Picasso who uh, uh, once was presented with a, a forgery of a work from an earlier period that he wasn't working anymore and asked to authenticate it. And he said, no, that wasn't mine. But the dealer was a friend of his. And so he said uh, to the dealer, well, how good a client is this that you're selling it to, uh, to or I guess uh, selling it from? And he said, oh, it's my, one of my very best uh, clients. In that case, I claim it as mine. And he signs it, <laughs> puts the authentic uh, signature on it. And your uh, you know, spirit of Picasso could do that from beyond the grave, right? If you're, if you appease him enough, uh, he could or even, uh, if, um, uh, doing it, uh, makes more problems for people than uh, rather than fewer because Picasso is a jerk even beyond the grave. <laughs> well, he, he could be a jerk to others, but nice to you. So he could, uh, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll sign this from beyond the grave <laughs> and the signature appears. And also, uh, yeah, this, this crooked cubist nose, I would never do the nose this way. That kind of, okay. Let me just fix this and, and then, you might suddenly have a, uh, a Picasso on, on your hands, which uh, creates an additional level of doubt, right? Is that if uh, artists can continue to create from beyond the grave, your recently painting painting may in fact be a, uh, a recent work by the Elven Master, and you just have to uh, somehow authenticate that. So you're not looking for how old the materials in the painting are, but rather, is it correctly imbued with the spirit of uh, the elder master. And so that can get you sort of into an, another interesting area where if in order to authenticate a work of art, you have to commune with the artist. Well, are you calling down something that you can't send away again afterwards? You know, what if, uh, uh, you know, in exchange for uh, signing this, I, Picasso, will possess your body for a mere 24 hours. What say you? <laughs> and uh, and we all know that nothing bad can possibly happen when you let Picasso have your body for a right. Yeah, the, the the odds of you being involved in a um, uh, debt or venereal disease are practically nil. Um, yeah, the uh, the question of um, once you start adding supernatural qualities in, another question is: Let's say that a piece of art has a occult code in it, right? Like it's an alchemical code, uh, a la your your Dan Browns and such not. Uh, but because this is a world of magic, the alchemy is sound. Is the forgery of uh, Botticelli's Primavera, if it copies the original Primavera, which the guy saw and has then been destroyed, does the alchemy pass along or is it corrupted? Is the act of the authenticity necessary for the forgery, um, which I guess is akin to the question of if you take a picture of an occult uh, piece of art, does the code transmit? Clearly, and I think for game purposes, you'd want to say no, because part of the fun is to go to the original source and have to stand there in Florence or wherever and look at the painting and take surreptitious notes and be uh, watched by the mysterious agent of the other conspiracy and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you could just get it by, you know, going on uh, Wikipedia or arthistory.com and uh, zooming the painting real big, then it wouldn't really be the same thing at all, would it? Uh, no. Um, you also uh, get to the uh, issue of if art is extraordinarily valuable in your fantasy world, it'll take on the qualities that it has here, where it is used as a um, currency for transactions between criminals. So it's not that uh, criminals really love mooks the scream, but if someone steals the scream, there is a cash value attached to that in a world of unliquid money, where that will 
uh, change hands as sort of a, a multi-million dollar IOU. And so in your fantasy world, uh, you may discover that, uh, you know, as a, a sort of a shifty uh, person, your patron comes to you and says, well, it turns out uh, that this uh, work by the great Valentinelli has been, uh, I've looked at it again, my clerics have looked at it, and it appears to be a fake. So what I need you to do is go and find out whether the guy who sold it to me faked it, in which case also kill him, <laughs> or uh, if it's an older fake than that, in which case you need to go find the clerics that will make this a better fake that won't get detected when I pass it along to the next guy in line. And so uh, suddenly the fact that uh, works of art are uh, valuable items between criminal gangs adds an element of danger to your scenario uh, that otherwise, uh, you know, the worst danger is you sprain your wrist holding up a paddle at the auction house or, you you know, you inhale some uh, paint varnish. <laughs> yeah, the, um, I mean, the presence of forgers, even in the real world, means the presence usually of criminals because they at least have to um, uh, engage in breaking and entering to replace it or uh, some sort of dealing with a not particularly licit uh, organization to get financing or to, or to, or to move the, the forger, the forged item to someone who doesn't mind buying a painting with perhaps, you know, iffy provenance or even someone who's willing to sell something on to the museum is generally someone who's also in touch with smugglers, which means they're in touch with hard cases. So in a magical world, it's even worse because the people who are involved in the magical forgery business, by definition, they have unscrupulous magicians somewhere because at the very least they have to cast those masking of forgery spells on the thing so that it will ping blue when you hit it with the detect magic. And, you know, those guys are probably bad news and they probably really don't like it when you start nosing around after them. And so that can provide maybe not the center of a story, but it can provide a good MacGuffin, as you suggest. It's not just go find out who forged this and then kill them. It's also a... You are going into the, you know, the bazaar in the new town and you say, I want to buy that ring of feather falling and you cast your thing. And because you're a player character, you're like, Hey, this is a forged ring of feather falling. And then that guy's like, who says so? And his big old ogre buddies come up and are going to beat you to death because now you know that they're running a, a scam uh, ring in forged uh, magical items. And another MacGuffin that you can get out of this story is uh, basically you're doing what John Drew did in real life, which is you need to go to the archive of Azkaban and sneak in this document that uh, attests to the existence of this previously unknown uh, unicorn sculpture by Valentinelli. And therefore uh, you, uh, you know, that, that gives you a novel reason to break into a thing, which of course is a staple of uh, role-playing scenarios, but that you're sneaking into a place to leave something behind uh, other than a bomb. I think is a, right. a fun uh, variant on that uh, premise. Yeah, and the um, and the other thing is that, of course, that the security on the provenance files is always less than the security on the painting. Yep. So even if you can't necessarily, um, you know, you're you're pretty sure that the painting is guarded with magic or with ogres or with uh, lasers or whatever. The provenance files are just guarded like the copy paper. It's not particularly guarded at all. It's maybe behind a Yale lock or at the, at the worst, a simple keypad punch that you can uh, defeat with a, with a swipe card. And, and another uh, final prem premise before we head on to our next segment is if uh, suddenly the market is being flooded with fakes and you know that for every fake you catch, there's another 
nine that are getting through and, and making money for whoever's suddenly uh, gone into the forgery business big time, then, of course, you follow the money to find out um, who's doing this and why. What are they raising uh, money for? It's, you know, uh, criminals sometimes raise money to just have it and roll around in it. But in this case, there's something even more sinister being uh, funded uh, with the art sales. But uh, speaking of authenticity, I guarantee you that the uh, ad that's coming up is 100% authentic. It's been checked over by uh, experts, and it's definitely the real thing. So check that out, and then we'll be back on the other side of it with another segment. Robin, what you working on these days? Thanks to the Kickstarter for the Yellow King role-playing game, I now have 40-plus stretch goals worth of additional material to create and or oversee. Yellow King, Yellow King, is that the game of weird horror in which players portray interconnected sets of characters in four different weird realities, all investigating the reality-warping activities of its titular monarch? None other, Ken. Would that game also include the innovative new take on the beloved gumshoe system, which adds such cool new features as faster player-facing combat and the vivid status effects of shock and injury cards? Yep, that's the one. And is that hideous wailing I hear the collective lamentation of gamers who, for whatever reason, were unable to back the Kickstarter? Yeah, sure sounds like it. Have you and our friends at Pograin Press considered leaving it open for pre-order for those who want to get in on the initial shipment and get a deal almost as special as that captured by original backers? Why, thank you for asking that question. The question I scripted for you, Ken. Does that mean listeners, in fact, can pre-order the Yellow King role-playing game by following a link in the show notes? It sure does, and you know what else it means? What? You may now discard a shock card. A shock card? I didn't know I had a shock card. A shock card? Oh. The Yellow King role-playing game pre-order. Follow the link in the show notes and discard a shock card. The chutter of IBM Selectric typewriter keys, the glug of mid-priced bourbon into a jelly jar, <laughs> and the slow susurrus of cursing as he attempts to extricate himself from whatever he's written himself into tell us we've once more entered the shadowy yet somehow loose confines of the hut in which we learn how to write good. And in How to Write Good, Robin, you want to talk about good writing v. bad writing of dramatic scenes and if i guess to begin with say what you mean about dramatic scenes as opposed to other scenes because i can hear all of our nanorimo audience rising up and saying every one of my scenes is dramatic that's why i'm writing it yes so this is not dramatic in the sense of exciting uh although um if every one of your scenes is exciting, and <laughs> you, you don't need advice from me. Right. Uh, and also, uh, don't write your... Uh, you can make your book shorter. Yes. Uh, but this is the, a scene in which uh, one character uh, desires an emotional payoff from another, and they have an exchange uh, generally of dialogue. Uh, and uh, you can have variations on that. You can have a group of characters who want something from one character or one character who is petitioning a group. But basically, uh, this is the way uh, dramatic scenes work, is there's uh, one character who uh, wants an emotional concession or reward or payoff from the other. They uh, advance uh, one or more tactics. Uh, the uh, other character resists, otherwise there's no drama. Uh, if the person says, well, I've you know, I really beg your forgiveness for this mom. And mom says, oh, sure, no problem. That's not a dramatic scene. Right. Or rather, it's one that occurs in a millisecond and then you need another scene. And that's as opposed to procedural scenes in which your characters are 
trying to climb up a mountain or escape from a shagif or engage in, in battle with, uh, with the enemy house or, or what have you. So uh, this is something that came to mind while watching the Netflix series The Defenders, <laughs> uh, which sadly uh, was not that great, but I get a segment out of it because there we go. In there, there, there are a bunch of problems with the scripting of that series. Uh, but the one I want to look at now is the fact that there are a lot of dramatic scenes that don't really go anywhere, that don't uh, accomplish anything, in which there's obviously a desire. Welcome to the last 30 years of television, Robin. Well, that's, th- this is, is particularly acute here. Uh, because, yeah, because uh, when no one you know cuts back the weeds, they keep growing. That's how it um, is. Well, I, I think even in in the, this is a particularly egregious example because. Well, I, I will I will uh, take your word for it. Yes, uh, you can outsource that that judgment, mm-hmm. and I think in in part it stands out because there's a desire to have characters from the different series that are being mushed together uh, to uh, create this sort of um, mega team up series, um, and it's a interesting idea and it seems like they're going to pull it off and then no and so uh, you know when you have the rosario dawson characters suddenly go up and talk to the deborah and wool character and uh they have an exchange it turns out that almost a, a whole bunch of times throughout that series there is no upshot of that scene there is no consequence of it it's just you know uh, one seeks reassurance from the other but then it doesn't actually alter the status quo of the story. And in a compelling story, every scene should change the outcome of the narrative and move it in a new direction. And so your test to determine whether a scene changes anything uh, is exactly that, is what is different now that they've had this conversation. If you've just got two characters checking in with each other, exchanging a series of views, and maybe even one is reassured, uh, but that doesn't alter the grand scheme of the narrative. That is a useless scene. Now, there is a distinction to be had. Uh, that doesn't mean that the character has to agree to the petition that they're being presented with as, as the grantor, as a person who's being approached for the uh, emotional concession. And early on in a story, you can actually have things that uh, establish a state of stasis, but that's what they're doing. They're establishing that state. So if you have a story in which the overall arc is one character seeking forgiveness from her mother, obviously math tells us that at the beginning of that story, there has to be, uh, after the scene, presumably where they do the thing that requires forgiveness, there's an early scene where they seek forgiveness and get shot down, that that gets refused. But that, even though the answer is a no, even though the main character doesn't get what they want, that still establishes something new or changes the direction of the narrative. And And I would argue that in a proper dramatic scene, that the outcome of that should be that the character who was refused resolves to take a new action or use a new approach or double down at least and become more obsessive about the thing that they wanted. Right. Exactly. They, it can't be, um, mom, uh, forgive me for the thing I did. And mom says no. And she said, well, 
I'll try again next Christmas. I mean, she has to say, well, I'll earn her love by going out and starting that Etsy store she always wanted me to, or I'll force her to forgive me by uh, seducing her new husband or whatever it is that's going to drive your story, depending on which network it's on, I suppose. And right. in, a, in a superhero story it would be, well, then I'm going to become a masked criminal and go knock over jewelry stores because now I don't have my mother's love. And that's what caused my origin story. Exactly. You want the, the character, one or both of the characters to resolve to do something as a result of that exchange. And if they neither was, neither does anything as a result of that exchange, you wrote it wrong and you can throw it out. Yep. Um, now, uh, it or is often sell it to case, Netflix. Right. It is often <laughs> the case that uh, the scene will just end on the refusal. And then the decision to do something about that is the next scene you see featuring that character. Um, and often now in uh, contemporary ensemble television, for example, where there's a lot of different character threads being served, you will see the petition being made, then they will cut away. So you'll just see the character go, uh, well, mom, I really hope you forgive me for this. And then you will see, you know, a reaction shot of the mom character as she's trying to decide whether to forgive her or not. And then it'll cut away and then there'll be something else. And then when they cut back, then you will get the um, mother refusing and then they'll cut away to something else. And then you will get the daughter uh, making the uh, resolution to go and do something, or you will just see them doing it uh, because that's also uh, a tenet of good storytelling is that you don't have to show every single moment in a progression. And if you, as long as the uh, viewer or reader can, read in why scene uh, B is the result of the dramatic exchange in scene A. You don't have to have the moment of the monologue where they say, well, now I'm going to resolve uh, to get my revenge. Or you don't have to say, have the character say, well, in that case, I'm going off to seek revenge. You can just see them doing step A in revenge. And it might not even be obvious exactly what they're doing. And it may be apparent in scene D or E or F that what they've uh, that the chain of actions that they're taking is a response to uh, the dramatic scene A. But eventually, that has to become apparent, either whether you're in an on-the-nose way making it absolutely clear to the uh, reader that that's what's happened, or uh, a, a perhaps stronger implicit way of allowing the reader to fill in the emotional blanks and, and see what's uh, happened there and what's driving the character. So... You know, to my uh, perhaps uh, primitive, simple, unfrozen cave viewer way of looking at things, um, you can still cut out about half of the dramatic scenes because unless it's a story of one character making I mean, if you're doing, you know, Hamlet or Breaking Bad, you pretty much have to follow Hamlet or uh, Walter everywhere. But if you've got an ensemble show, part of the fun should be that you see the, you know, the character being shot down or the character not getting what they want. And then you follow another character doing another thing. And then you follow another character doing another thing. And you've almost forgotten that that first character did anything. And you come back and they're doing something crazy and you have to connect that yourself. If instead there's a whole ton of interstitial scenes where they ask the mom, we cut away and do other things. We cut back to the mom saying, no, we cut away and doing a bunch of other things. We cut back to the character stomping out. You know, we've just wasted all of those scenes because every one of those scenes has to have a setup. It has to get you to buy back into it. And a scene in which you ask the mom, even if she says, doesn't say no on screen, you walk away and, you know, the next scene you see, she's mad as hell and running through the trunk of her car for that old supervillain costume. Now you're like, oh, I get it. She was refused by her mom. That's why she's doing it. And it can add 
interest as opposed to um, just constantly drowning you in the same information presented over and over again, because no scene stands on its own completely. Every scene has to sort of refer back to another scene and ideally predict a future scene. And that overlapping part is going to read as wasted narrative. If you spend each scene explaining, you know, uh, now you, the viewer, remember why we're here. She just asked for that thing. Um, you, you wind up, you know, putting the, the viewer or the reader through cycles that don't matter. And in a book, it's, if anything, even less forgivable because you don't have the visual cues for memory that you did, uh, for a TV show with a TV show. At least you can say, Oh, look, it's Rosario Dawson. I remember her. Uh, she's terrific. And you know, you, you remember because you're connected to that visual memory of Rosario Dawson. Whereas in the book, you have the character, you know, Grace, and you may or may not have thought of Rosario Dawson when you were reading about Grace, but you certainly don't have that immediate, oh, right, they were in that thing, and then they were talking, that your visual cortex processes immediately. So if you do this nonsense in a book, then you literally do have to spend part of that scene either referring back to the original scene or confusing the bananas out of the reader with without giving them the uh, the fun of, of suspense because they're solving the thing that if you'd written the book correctly, it would have told you to begin with. Well, I think you're hitting on the, the uber thing of narrative, which is if you can not have a scene in your book, don't. Right. Uh, but, of course, that's... Yeah. Uh, that's easier easier said than done. And with sub-authors, that should be applied to all the scenes. Right. <laughs> uh, but, but we're helping people to write good. Yeah. Um, so the the way to uh, to do that then, uh, to, to review, is to uh, have a uh, strong uh, petition that the grantor does not want to immediately give and uh, have a consequence of that exchange. And so that your test for, is this emotional scene doing anything, is... Does it change the storyline? Um, now, uh, again, in a lot of uh, episodic television, there are some sort of stock scenes where the characters uh, go through the same uh, emotional motions again and again and then reset to norm, and that's uh, a function of the structure of those shows rather than something that you should be importing into your own uh, writing. And even uh, a well-done version of that will have the characters, uh, one one of the other characters will do something that they wouldn't have already have done as a result of that scene, rather than just having them comment on the action. And this is a big problem, I think, in procedural or uh, nerdy genre writing in general, which is there's kind of a thought that, oh, just having the characters talk to each other, that's interaction. Just having them touch base and emote. Uh, that's something you might do with your friends, but dramatic characters... Uh, they might be doing that, you know, indeed, you know, in, in a scene that's not shown in the show, uh, uh, Karen might get reassured uh, by night nurse, but if it's, uh, not doing anything in your narrative, you can just assume that happened rather than show that happening in order to give the, uh, actors more to do. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons that I think, you know, that I specifically criticize the diabotchization is because he creates this ensemble and there's a financial and, other structural incentive to put Rosario Dawson in more scenes. Whereas if she, in a less ensemble show, you would only put her in scenes where you really needed her. And if you look at older shows, the guest stars showed up when they were, Hey, guess what? Moving the plot. Not when it was just, Hey, we haven't checked in with Rosario Dawson. I wonder if she's having Frogert, you know, again, Although in this example, uh, in, in all the Marvel shows, they actually use the sort of new, uh, cable paradigm where, your name is in the credits for X number of episodes. And if you're not required, 
you're not in that uh, episode, which is what was so great about, say, the original Daredevil, is that each episode is sort of very self-contained. Mm-hmm. But then as it's gone on, uh, they've uh, fallen back more and more into the uh, old ways. And I think it's not a desire to, oh, we need something for Rosario to do in this scene, but, uh, oh, we need to have those sort of characters interact. They finally have a reason to talk to each other, except they don't right. because their conversation doesn't change anything or spur either of them. And also a lot of it is because they've only written four episodes of story and they've got a 13 episode commitment and it's easy to write and shoot a 10 minute sequence between characters that the audience likes anyway with actors that they enjoy because no one really, you know, no one has ever in the history of mankind written it and said, you showed too much Rosario Dawson in this. So, (laughs) And I'm not going to either. Um, despite the fact that generally when she's on the, sh- on, on, a sh- on the show, even in the second Daredevil, there was an awful lot of, um, uh, play of, of timekeeping in, in, in the night nurse segments. And part of it is because again, if you have Rosario Dawson, why not put her on TV? That seems to be what the world wants. Well, and also they're doing that Marvel thing of she's the link that connects all the different shows together. So we have to establish her in this show doing something, even though there's nothing for her to do. But I think now we're uh, bridging out, I think, uh, A, into a uh, critique of uh, meta narrative that inserts unnecessary scenes into your current story in order to promote a later one, and also padding in general. So if we keep going on about padding, we have padded this podcast. So instead, let's check out this uh, commercial and then see what lurks behind it. Eight years ago, the terrorist agents of Havoc triggered a nuclear nightmare that devastated the Northern Hemisphere. Patiently in scattered colonies deep underground, survivors have been waiting for the radiation to ebb. That day has come, but the real battle for survival has only just begun. In Freeway Warrior 1 Highway Holocaust, you are Cal Phoenix, the Freeway Warrior, champion and protector of Dallas Colony 1. Murderous Havoc bikers hunt your fragile convoy as it crosses the wastelands of Texas. Defending your people and reaching your destination intact requires all the wit and courage you can muster. Highway Holocaust, an exclusive hardcover with dust jacket and book ribbons, is the first choose-your-own-adventure gamebook in Joe Deaver's post-apocalyptic Freeway Warrior series. From the fine folks at Phoenix, now available from Modifius. Establish this podcast's bona fides by joining Patreon backers exactly like Michael Manival, Trung Boy, Chris Lydon, Ethan James, and Isaac Priestley. The popping vertebrae of the UPS delivery guy alerts us to the fact that a bunch of boxes have suddenly arrived, and those boxes contain the results of Ken's recent bookshopping expedition to Powell's, because we're again about to paw through Ken's bookshelf. This is the segment, which is many different segments in one. We'll visit a whole bunch of different huts, because Ken, you bought a whole bunch of different books. And without further ado... uh, Following up on a theme established in previous Ken's Bookshelf segments, you got yourself another Lawrence of Arabia book. I did. Uh, This time, 
A Young Lawrence, Portrait of the Legend as a Young Man by Anthony Satin. So normally I say, what's different about this one? And I bet this is about young T.E. Lawrence. Well, you would be correct, Robin. That is indeed what it is about. Um, young Lawrence, uh, before he goes off and starts the Arab Revolt, is super fascinating to me because it, this is when he is starting out his career as a archaeologist and probably starting off his career as a spy for the British Arab Bureau, or uh, it was probably then the India office. It probably was, didn't even have a separate Arab, Arab Bureau because the thing that you learn about British intelligence is that it is way more ad hoc before uh, World War II than you ever thought it could be. And there's a lot of people who just seem to have been bored at their real job and said, you know what I should do? Start up a spy agency, but just not tell anyone. It was just a bunch of gentlemen muddling along and in, in a dilettantist fashion. How could this possibly be? <laughs> it doesn't sound like England, does it? It's, no. It seems like that would be a whole different country. Uh, but no, it is in fact how they used to run things back when they ran a quarter of the world and Really, that's kind of a bad look for Germany that you guys couldn't beat that. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's it's the whole, you know, I've got a bar and you've got some clothes. Let's put on an empire. Let's let's put on a spy agency. Yeah, so Lawrence at this point, he's doing his archaeology, he's learning to make maps. Um there's probably, you know, some part of his unhappy home life that we get into, but uh, this is really going to focus on that cool secret history T.E. Lawrence. And again, the cool Arab Revolt T.E. Lawrence is also very cool. Don't get me wrong. But a lot of even biographies of Lawrence, they want to, you know, get ahead to the firework factory. And I think that the part where he's sneaking around, you know, sketching out uh, ancient ruins and perhaps learning the secrets of the genies or of um, uh, or at least of the hated Germans is interesting. Well, speaking of the Germans, uh, next up is the Black Game. British Subversive Operations Against the Germans During the Second World War by Alec Howe. Yeah, Alec Howe worked in the what they call the Political Warfare Executive, the PWE, and he would um, fake up uh, posters and literature that would look like they came from elsewhere in Germany, and then they would be dropped in to mess with people's morale. And this is a bigger history of the PWE. Alec Howe is also, he is also uh, the author of um, uh, A History of the Golden Dawn, A History of Astrology, and the book about using astrology in World War II, because one of the things that he would have to fake up was almanacs and Nostradamus prophecies and stuff like that. So he's really sort of your ground zero guy for the magical war against Hitler, as well as in this case, the propaganda war against Hitler. And if you've got a sort of a, um, uh, madness dossier or image magic, um, memetic magic concept going on in your head, uh, the difference is not that, uh, different. And so having Alec Howe's own book, on the PWE gives you the rest of the context because you would be forgiven based on his uh, book about astrological warfare in World War II uh, to think that, nope, there's just a special astrology office and it does nothing but that. But of course, Howe was doing all kinds of other things and this gives you a chance to work in other stuff. And so if you read in the black game that he's uh, making a poster, you can find a picture of the poster. You can say, is that poster alchemical? Is that poster doing something else magical? And so this builds out not just a interesting side note of the war, but also lets you expand on his previous uh, explicitly occult histories. Right. And as we've uh, covered in the podcast previously, fake supernatural rumors uh, generated by British intelligence go all the way at least into the 70s. Uh, so uh, he was uh, establishing something that would... Uh, go on and mutate and uh, and continue to uh, get weird and introduce uh, strangeness 
uh, that we can use in our uh, games and fiction. Uh, continuing uh, in the mini tradecraft hut here, we have Empire of Secrets, British Intelligence, The Cold War, and The Twilight of Empire by Calder Walton. So here we're moving uh, from the glorious heyday I guess to the uh, the uh, embers beginning to turn embery. Yeah, this is the tail end of the of the British Empire. Um, it mostly focuses on the MI5, which was, of course, the counterintelligence unit. But when you're uh, believe that the uh, domestic realm includes India and Kenya and Malaya, MI5 looks an awful lot like everybody else's actual spy agency. And it certainly looks to the Malayans and Kenyans and Indians like an actual spy agency. And so this is how those stations operated during the sort of the, the, the truly first James Bond era when Bond is being written about in, in the fifties and sixties. So this is the last bit of time in which Britain could be a superpower in, in the intelligence world uh, before they just simply lost all of those listening stations. They still have the great tradition of human intelligence now, but they just don't have the physical facilities or the budget that they had back in the day. So this is sort of that last gasp. And if you wanted to do an alternate history where Britain comes out of the Cold War, uh, uh, out of the World War II, not owing the United States all the money in the whole world, or you wanted to do an alternate history where they uh, cut a deal with the Nazis and kept the empire, or you just wanted to set something in the 50s and 60s, this is a terrific uh, sort of a source on that. And I'm sure that it will have many wonderful side pieces of information about uh, various uprisings and problems that the British found themselves in the midst of. Uh, now, the next book, uh, we're going to uh, head past the mythology hut. So this goes on the shelf there. I gather from the subtitle that this is a uh, scholarly uh, survey rather than a, a cuckoo crazy pants, uh, hey, they're real sort of situation. We've got The Phoenix, an unnatural biography of a mythical beast by Joseph Nigg. Uh, Joseph Nigg is a guy who has sneaky-wise um, sort of made a proper adult living out of what I do, uh, because he has a <laughs> bunch of books, all of them about, or almost all of them, about mythical animals. So he has, he, his first book, I think, was about the griffin, and then he's done uh, books about sea monsters, and books about um, uh, all manner of other critters, and the phoenix is his latest, and it contains... Uh, pretty much a summa of the phoenix going all the way back to the Greeks, and I'll suspect even before the Greeks, to the Bennu bird and things like that that the Egyptians came up with. And then it talks about every way that the phoenix has been used. So it's cultural history, as well as talking about cool uh, mythical animals. And uh, I, I love Joseph Nigg's stuff. It's all terrific. And the fact that suddenly there's a book about the Phoenix that came out, I guess, last year, and that uh, the good people at Powell's had it for not that much money meant that now I get to own Joseph Nigg's The Phoenix. Uh, now I guess we're headed uh, more into the uh, parlor of the consulting occultist proper, because this one I can't tell uh, whether it's uh, scholarly or uh, within the supernatural tradition. Uh, so you have to enlighten me about the First Signs Unlocking the Mysteries of the World's Oldest Symbols by Jean-Viev von Petzinger. Okay. Um, Jean-Viev von Petzinger does not apparently have a doctorate. And now a lot of people who are credential maniacs will say, then maybe she shouldn't be writing scholarly books about paleoanthropology. But she does seem to have at least done some of the legwork. She's gone to these sites. She's more importantly scoured through the archives for everyone else's research about the sites. So I cannot tell you that Genevieve von Petzinger is a crazy person. That said, if you believe that there is an 
a vocabulary of 32 signs and symbols that is common to all Paleolithic man, you are a crazy person. <laughs> yes, the, the presence of an overarching system, heretofore undiscovered, is always a, uh, a flag, shall we say. Right. She has given a number of TED Talks, which does not make the uh, the mind any any more calm about the possibility that her book is a farrago of nonsense. But again, she does have an actual database of facts. So regardless of its merits as a theory, it will at the very least present, one hopes, the, uh, the case in a non-malarchy-filled uh, way. And, you know, the notions of why are all of these geometric signs so common across uh, Paleolithic man... Part of it is because there's only so many ways you can carve something into a rock, and part of it is because we're still dealing with the same visual architecture, so two dots is going to be two dots wherever you go. I'm not sure how much of a stratum of woo-woo she builds onto the notion that there are 32 common symbols in all this Paleolithic rock art, but at the very least, it will make a substantially cool thing to uh, sneak into a game if you start having like the Piltdown Tarot or something where, oh no, these are the 32 archetypes. These are the, you know, they, they could be, you could, in an Unknown Armies game, you could say these are the first 32 uh, ascended and they're guarding their roles very, very jealousy, jealously against all of these newcomers because 32 is one less than 33 and blah, blah, blah. You can tie it into all manner of things if you want to. It's eminently gameable. It's great fun. Um, you could decide that one of them is the, is the Cthulhu symbol if you wanted to, for example, and then just follow that around. There's a spiral, so spirals are fun and magic, as we learned from Higachinsky. And if she just bothers to trace these things and give us any hint about her database, or if you can maybe go online and find her database somewhere, that will be a, a useful a useful task that she has performed for right. people who want to make things up on the back of her research. And, and certain geometric forms uh, seem to be associated with different stages of a psychotropic experience. So. Right, or with a migraine. Right. Uh, now, uh, do, do the margins on the back cover test? text tell us anything uh no this is from simon and schuster this is a grown-up people book um the margins on the back cover are professional the font choices are wise the art is attractive um if you didn't know better you would say oh simon and schuster they're a reliable publisher they wouldn't publish malarkey but of course haha <laughs> everyone publishes malarkey nowadays yeah. but this is not at least you know jumping both feet into our caveman atlantean psychic ancestors what didn't they know about climate change uh, the way that you might expect if it had come from a different publisher and in fairness to Jean-Vierre von Petzinger, a different author, because I'm sure she's as impatient about Atlantis as everybody else is. Uh, so uh, next up uh, we have, uh, I'm going to guess and say that this is uh, taking us a little further into woo woo uh, Nostradamus, the evidence by Ian Wilson. And the reason I say that is if you say that you've got evidence in the subtitle, uh, the chances are that you're overcompensating for, for something. Uh, am I wrong? Ian Wilson is a very interesting character. Ian Wilson likes to go for dodgy topics. So he has a question about a book about Shakespearean authorship. He has a book about the um, Shroud of Turin. And now this book about Nostradamus and no doubt other books. And what he does is he presents as sober a theory as he possibly can while still pointing to all the things that make people question the sober theory. So his book about Shakespeare, for example, comes down to, yep, Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare. Don't be a big baby. But isn't that weird? 
Isn't that strange? <laughs> Isn't that odd? Um, his thing about the Shroud of Turin is, yeah, it's probably a medieval forgery, but here's a bunch of odd things that make you think maybe it's not a medieval forgery because look, this could plausibly have happened. So again, I think Ian Wilson, if you know, you got him drunk and, and he had his druthers, he's like, Oh yeah, it's the Shroud of Christ. Um, but I don't <laughs> think that he puts that in the book because he, uh, conceives of his task to be a reputable scholar and sort of lay it out for sensible people to look at. And that, that kind of makes him more fun in many ways than either a boring old debunker or a just sheerly unmoored crazy person, because he actually is going to be constrained by the evidence. So if he says Nostradamus, the evidence, he's going to go back and find out what people in the 16th century thought of Nostradamus, not what people in the 19th century thought of Nostradamus. And he's going to make explicit that there's a difference between those two things. And that a guy who was perhaps best known at the time for his jam recipes is maybe or maybe not going to have been uh, the ultimate prophet who would um, uh, set all Europe ablaze. And uh, that said, he knows Nostradamus is great fun for people, and he wants to provide as much of a case as there is for saying, maybe he did see the future. Who can say? We don't know. Yeah, and, and his crab apple jelly did project Brexit. It did. It did, actually. And uh, his boysenberry jam uh, is one of the seals of the Antichrist. So be careful. Uh, well, on that note, uh, I think it's time to uh, check out this uh, commercial that's uh, partway through. We've gotten halfway through the box, and there we found a commercial. So let's listen to this uh, exciting, uh, charming, and informative commercial, and then we'll come back and keep rooting through the box. The covert agents of Delta Green fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. Your players are those agents. As their GM, you need to handle them. That's why you need the Delta Green Handler's Guide, the game's game moderator-only rulebook. Including such essential eyes-only features as... A history of the world of Delta Green, from pre-human times to the present day, with campaign tips and scenario seeds on every page. Sinister rituals, unnatural entities, and reality-shattering great old ones. New threats to shock and terrify your agents. The secret of Delta Green organization in deep and disturbing detail. And the other ruthless conspiracy that claims it is the real Delta Green. Oh, those jerks again. Ah. Also includes Operation Fulminate, the Sentinels of Twilight, a sample scenario ready to play. Your players, they are the apocalypse. You, you moderate their apocalypse. With the Delta Green Handler's Guide from Arc Dream Publishing. Okay, so we're back for the uh, second half of the box of stuff that you got uh, at uh, Powell's in Portland, because uh, you were out at Portland for the uh, uh, Lovecraft Film Festival. Yep. And that's uh, because, uh, you know, you can go to your regular Chicago Powell's any old time, and that's, uh, presumably you do. Yes. And like dramatic scenes that don't go anywhere, we leave that on the cutting room floor. Right. Even if I run into Rosario Dawson and talk about the books, I do not share them with you. Right. But if you resolve to go and do something different because of your conversation with Rosario Dawson, then we would know about it. Right. If Rosario Dawson says, hey, check out this cool book about UFOs, then maybe there's a segment about it. Right. And I'm sure the first thing she would recommend to you is Ghosts Along the Cumberland, Death Lore in the Kentucky Foothills, by William Linwood Montell. And the arrangement of that subtitle makes me think uh, we're still 
safely in scholarly territory here in the uh, Elliptony Hut, I guess. This is the straight-up um, uh, folklore segment that is a important uh, foundational load-bearing beam of the Elliptony Hut. Uh, this is a guy, he goes out and captures the tales of ghosts and death in what they call the Penny Rall in Kentucky. And this is in uh, South Central Kentucky. Uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, uh, iconic ghost lore. And this fellow has gone and uh, dug around. It's in the Cumberland Valley, which explains ghosts along the Cumberland. And it is, of course, you know, it speaks for itself why you would want a book about ghost lore. But this is straight up folklore. This is proper thing. So there's a million ghost stories. None of them told very well, because if there's one thing that you know, it's reading folkloric reports of ghost stories is somehow less satisfying than reading, oh, I don't know, an M.R. James ghost story, or even hearing a ghost story from that same uh, folk uh, would have been. But it does provide you the raw data that you need to say, how many different kinds of ghosts are there in Kentucky? And what if they had Savage World stats and lived in Tennessee? Right. It's, it's like people need horror writers to uh, to goose these up for uh, public consumption. Right. Thank goodness we have a job, Ken. Yes, a, a wipe of the brow to be glad that, A, we are not in the panoral being hated by ghosts, but also that we get to write them up and sneak them into all manner of things. Uh, although, admittedly, if we put them somewhere else, it we won't get to say panoral as often as we would. <laughs> now, here's a title that uh, could be almost anything, so I'm looking forward to learning which anything it is legend tripping the ultimate adventure by robert c robinson this is uh from my old friend david hatcher childress's company adventures unlimited press it's by the world explorers club which is i think the sort of uh i don't want to say tax dodge but i'll say <laughs> way that he uh justifies going to all these other foreign countries to uh, misinterpret their myth and lore and this is a straight up um, hey, if you're planning to go around America looking for Bigfoots, this is A, where you should go. This is maybe what you should bring. So it's sort of half a camping book, half a um, uh, travelogue, half a compilation of weird cryptozoology and whatnot. So if you wanted to go to um, uh, Adams, Tennessee, because that's where the Bell Witch case happened, this will tell you a little bit about Adams, Tennessee and how you get there and... Um, uh, what to what to look for and it's again this is sort of unnecessary in the modern world of google if you knew you wanted to go for the bell witch you would probably be able to google that and get to the bell witch by yourself but what it is presumably this tells us what flavor of kind bars bigfoot's like right it, well ideally i've not yet gone to the uh which kind bars does bigfoot like and we really do need to nail down the sponsorship before we keep doing this uh <laughs> But yeah, this is fundamentally, and it has, you know, the, the go bag you will need for Sasquatch hunting. It has, um, all manner of fun little, uh, photographs and whatnot. It's basically, it's, it's, you know, it's like a, a fun travel narrative. It's just a fun travel narrative about cryptids and UFOs. And so who doesn't love that? Um, uh, Lauren Coleman, the beloved American, uh, cryptozoologist, uh, anomalist hunter, uh, writes the foreword. So it's, as reputable as a cryptid hunting book can be, uh, and much of it is just straight up, um, hey, you're going in the woods, take some water and a flashlight, dummy, which is helpful. That's important whether you're uh, looking for Blair Witches or Bigfoots or anything else that could be out in the woods. Right. Uh, but if it's giants out in the woods, you probably also want to take a copy of Unearthing the Lost World of the Cloud Eaters, compelling evidence of the incursion of giants, their extraordinary technology, and imminent return 
by Stephen Quayle and Dr. Thomas R. Horn. And uh, that's an example of uh, the subtitle doing all of our work for us. Yes, very much so. But if you could imagine uh, the smallest font you would want to see on the back cover of a book. (laughs) I'm imagining it now. Imagine it even smaller. That's what the back cover of the book looks like. It's, um, it may be five point. It's six point if it's a, if it's, if it's a day. So the thing is, the answer is, we're, we've, we've been the giants all along. We are and the, the giants all along. The reason we can tell along. is that the font size is very tiny, and by comparison, we're big compared to the back cover text. So, um, and this guy, uh, whoever wrote the back cover text for Defender Books, he is, he, he has learned from role playing, uh, disclosed the truth behind the great Smithsonian cover up, revealed the pre flood architecture of the giant kings, deciphered pre flood angel civilizations, the remnants of watchers, uncovered the secret of the Anasazi and why they disappeared overnight, unveiled ancient history hidden stargates that medicine men still use to see the future confessed the sacred mountains where the giant bones are kept exposed what tribal elders confessed about the returning giants unmasked giant cannibalistic <laughs> gods that demand human sacrifice discovered children of cloud eaters six-figured six-toed mutants unwrapped shapeshifters skinwalkers other sky people unearthed where the gates will open when the cloud eaters return robin this book it looks so beautiful. The only downside that, more excitable than any back cover text I've ever written for any Cthulhu book. Or well, anything. maybe you take a lesson from the people at Defender Books. Apparently there are, so. There are only I've two been, downsides. I've been leaving some crazy on the table. Although there are substantial end notes, which there happen to be a lot of times, there is no index, which makes me very sad. And the inside font is much bigger than the back cover font. So, well, you got to get all those expository expostulations in there. Right. So I, I'm worried that maybe the back cover is the single best thing in the book, but I'm sure that it will, in fact, do all of the disclosing, revealing, deciphering, uncovering, unveiling, confessing, exposing, unmasking, discovering, unwrapping, and unearthing that it promises to do. And even without that, my goodness, who doesn't need compelling evidence of the encouragement of giants, their extraordinary technology, and their imminent return? Robin, I ask you. Well, all I can say is I hope their extraordinary technology makes Facebook notifications easier. It is. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, next, we have The Lost World of Cham, The Trans-Pacific Voyages of the Champa by David Hatcher Childress. Uh, where does this fall on the uh, continuum of uh, scholarly to woo-woo? Oh, this is this is woo-woo. This is my my man, David Hatcher Childress, terrific guy. Uh, good buddies with him. I uh, used to see him at Book Expo all the time. Um, he runs Adventures Unlimited Press. This is from Adventures Unlimited Press, and this is a standard example where you take a fun anomaly. In this case, the question of the Cham who. Uh, live in the uh, central coast of Vietnam, basically around Da Nang and, uh, and, and that area, that sort of uh, plain south of Hue, the coastal plain. They are Muslims in a world that is Buddhist and lots of other things, but their Islam is sort of weird. Uh, they have a very ideographic or ideological in the sense of they believe that the written word is sacred and magical in and of itself. They have frog gods that are carved into their uh, temples that are the watchers. They practice sea burial. Uh, all of their neighbors hate them. In fact, they are a very um, uh, standard sort of uh, the tribe that if the French had been thinking, they would have put in charge of the place because then they would have had loyal friends forever. But instead... They sort of said, ah, we hit them too. So the Cham have been bully ragged and mocked and made fun of and called all kind of names by all of their neighbors and all of the anthropologists 
ever since. And so that means that there's a bunch of cool legends and weird stuff about them that you can then use to pretend that they come from ancient Egypt and discovered America. And that is what my man, Richard, uh, David Hatcher Childress does is once he takes a mystery and there's any number of other mysteries, either geographically or temporally that can be associated with, he looks for those links. And if he can't find the links, he decides there are links in the form of saying, could there be a link? <laughs> and then, um, uh, the old uh, rhetorical question can, can bear a lot of weight. And he is a past master at the rhetorical question. So for example, the, as far as I can tell, without actually reading the book all the way through, we have been talking about how there was a trade in gems in the ancient world and why not involve the cham in it. And so when we talk about gems, we talk about magic gems and we talk about magic gems. We talk about a stone called the Shamir that was apparently incorporated into the Ark of the Covenant. And so we have already gotten to the Ark of the Covenant from the cham right. it, with very little work. Yes. I think there's three massive suppositions to get there so far. All right. And we're not even done yet. The, the, the Shamir is also a, uh, a called a, a worm. So it's not just a substance. It could be a, a biological entity. We have, it cuts stone and metal and he, he goes through, he says, um, uh, it is difficult to find a lot of information on the Shamir, but let us look at the Wikipedia entry under Solomon's Shamir, which that, that's, I think maybe, and I, I want to think better of uh, David Hatcher Childress than this. I think he just was on deadline and needed to get this done. All right. He had the but flu, he had to power through. This is all, this is all David. After he goes through the whole thing about the Shamir, he says, so what was the Shamir? It is tempting to think that it was some sort of laser technology. Oh, tempting to think. <laughs> tempting to think. Uh, the lazy, the lazy oh, man's bridge from oh, one nonsense to the other. It couldn't have been better. Um, uh, and so then we go all the way down to again with some highly developed civilization or several of them producing diamond saws, diamond drills, even airships. <laughs> it's like, um, <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> even if you followed him all the way to. Solomon's magic diamond cutting worm was actually a laser. Now we're <laughs> now, of course, we're at, at airships. So never pile one unreality on when you can pile all of them on. And that's the David Hatcher children's lesson. And that I hope is what you take away from Ken and Robin every week. Uh, right. Well, since, since that seems kind of uh, supposition based, let's, <laughs> let's go to a topic that is never dealt with, uh, with uh, anything more than the utmost uh, rigor and seriousness Atlantis in the Amazon, Lost Technologies, and the Secret of the Crespi Treasure by Richard Wingate. Ken, what, pray tell, is the Crespi Treasure? It is a treasure that the Ecuadorian missionary, I guess he was an Italian missionary, but he went to Ecuador. Yes, the Ecuadorians are going to tell you he's Italian. <laughs> right, yeah, I'll bet they will. And he goes uh, to Ecuador to missionary, and the Ecuadorians say, uh, we've been Catholic for 500 years, but whatever. So he goes farther into the woods or mountains mountain woods i don't know and the locals there have been guarding a treasure full of bronze plaques gold sarcophagi uh copper wheels and gears weird machines uh all manner of uh of vital uh elliptony in pure form and, and i bet they don't call it the crespi treasure at this they point. didn't at that point but according to father crespi who after all was there um they all became Catholic and they thought Catholicism was so important that they should give their treasure to Father Crespi to guard. And <laughs> Father Crespi they now were on the head and was presumed Catholic. Yes. And then, and then Father Crespi, however, lost track of the treasure after his death, as you do. And apparently it went into the hands of the Ecuadorian government and the Ecuadorian government 
is sitting on it, sold it to the Bilderbergers. I don't know what happened to it, but the larger point is that we are going to go back, find Father Crespi's description of the treasure. We're going to make stuff up about the Quechua, and we're going to put Atlantis in the Amazon. And by in the Amazon, I assume we mean at the very, very source of the Amazon, because um, uh, Ecuador is not on the Amazon, really. It's on the other side. But uh, the larger point being that if you'd said Atlantis in Ecuador, it wouldn't have sold as many copies. But maybe the argument is that the Ecuadorians got it from the Amazon uh, after they conv- converted them to Quechuaism and uh, took their stuff. Right, because if you've just got them in Ecuador, you can't have Atlantean piranha people. Right. And and that's a, a mistake that I think no elliptinist would make. Right, it's just like a, a Atlantean guinea pig people. And that's not that much fun. I mean, cuter. Uh, and finally... Uh, we come to uh, Peter Moon's Spandau Mystery, which I assume is not about Spandau Ballet. No, it's about um, uh, Spandau Prison and the mystery of why uh, Rudolf Hess was in there and what was up with Rudolf Hess and was he a duplicate and was he an alien and was he a UFO. Um, Sp- Spandau Mystery is by Peter Moon. Peter Moon is most famous as the uh, chief explicant of the Montauk conspiracy theory, the Montauk Project conspiracy theory, which by now has metastasized and incorporates all manner of bananas information. This one is told, I believe, in the form of a novel, um, but it it, became, it becomes difficult at some point to tell what's a novel and what's the first person elliptonist's quest book. Um, right. But my theory is it's probably a novel, but either way, it's a part of the Peter Moon cinematic universe and uh, drags uh, Tibet and the Vril and all manner of wonderful things in. It's more, I think, for the completist, the Peter Moon completist, than it is for the new student of uh, the mystery, even of the Spandau mystery, because there are certainly better books about crazy Rudolf Hess theories, even better crazy books about crazy Rudolf Hess theories. But uh, this is one for the Peter Moon uh, library shelf and any uh, fellow followers of the Montauk uh, now there's another one. Uh, well, uh, it is tempting to believe many things, Ken, but uh, what I'm most tempted to believe is that we've reached the end of another exciting uh, podcast, uh, full of exciting little driblets of topics that uh, you, our Patreon backers, can uh, tell us that you want to hear more about uh, and uh, prompt Ken to bump one of those books up on his reading list. Uh, but until then, it's time for us to uh, uh, wave a farewell, uh, help Ken uh Put these books on the shelf, and we'll be back again with another episode, oh, I think exactly a week from now. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors! Atlas Games! Palgrain Press! Askfagelm! Arc Dream! Dork Tower! And Pro Fantasy Software! Music, as always, is by James Semple! Audio editing by Rob Borges! Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Vicariously caress Ken's library alongside such patrons as... James Pearson. Linda and Mike Schiffer. Philip Masters. Andrew Collins. And Anton Kulikov. Snag Ken and Robin apparel and other Air Unite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time and once again... We will talk about stuff.